The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Howdy, listeners in listeners land. This oh is Arnold boy. Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. Well, howdy, Arnold. <laughs> howdy, partner. Howdy there, Chris. How you doing? Let me let me uh, corral my horse out there and tie it up before I come on in the station here. You need me to cue up Leroy the Redneck Reindeer again? <laughs> not, no. not until we get to December. <laughs> no, we don't want that one again. Hey, welcome, folks, to Intune, a two-hour weekly broadcast which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community in the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. Today we have a very outstanding show. As Ellie would say about her show, we always have an outstanding show here on Intune. You know, I have no complaints. I do have one complaint. I'm looking at my weather app. It says it is 19 degrees, but I think my weather app is... Cold. (laughs) I mean, 19 degrees. It's cold out. It is very cold. We want to warn our listeners, please. All of you guys that like to run out there in your shorts and your uh, sandals right now, if I see you out there in your shorts and sandals, I'm just going to do something really bad to you. But if they're from northern Canada, that's probably okay. <laughs> that's right. It's probably warm for yeah. them. Like, oh, it's summertime down here. 19 degrees. To um, It's supposed to get up to about 31 degrees later, you know, just by the time the sun is supposed to set. But the sun is shining. It's not cloudy right now. It, it is very nice. It, it will fool you. So don't walk out thinking that just because the sun is shining that all is well. So you're going to are you saying that people are fools if they walk outside? I'm not saying that. I'm not you did not hear that from me. Ever. Okay, so bundle <laughs> up out there. It's bundle chilly. Bundle up. Hey, today we are going to be celebrating an anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the deployment of the USS Missouri. Battleship number 63, BB-63. 75 years? 75 years ago. My goodness. Actually, on January the 29th, it was launched from the Brooklyn shipyard and was a very important cog in the end of the Pacific War, along right. with the three other battleships of that class. The uh, two, uh, the three others, one was the Wisconsin, and then we also had the Iowa and the New Jersey. So those four ships, those four battleships with, you know, 16-inch guns, we always hear about the 16-inch guns that the uh, those four battleships had. But the Missouri had a, a very important history in that it was the ship upon which the Japanese surrender was signed. And we're going to hear today uh, about the christening from some newsreels, we're going to hear Douglas MacArthur's speech that he gave at the surrender. And then we're going to hear in the second half hour, at, at, after the bottom of the hour, we're going to hear from uh, a petty officer third class machinist mate, John Atkins, who actually was on the Missouri when it was uh, launched from Brooklyn. 
He went through the Panama Canal. He went to Pearl Harbor. He was on the ship when the kamikaze pilot ran into the ship. He was on the ship when this Japanese surrender was signed. And then he was on the ship as it made its way back to New York, to the Brooklyn shipyard. Did he ever write a book about his experiences? He he did not, but he is a very, very sharp individual. He is 98, going to be 99 on Monday. So I know you're listening out there, John. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And thank you for just, you know, when you think back on that, that the things that he experienced as a young man have helped us be the free country that we are today. And we are thankful for his participation in uh, his service to our country. And I also want to thank uh, Steve Dotson, who's the American Legion Post 111. Uh, He's the post commander in Shrewsbury for setting the interview up. Steve was very helpful and is also a vet of the U.S. Army from Vietnam. So we've got a, a huge show, and then the second hour, we've, we're going to have Mike Carr, who's the president and CEO of the USS Missouri Memorial Association in Pearl Harbor. He's going to be on, because if you've not been up close to a United States Navy ship, it's an incredible sight. I had the opportunity to be on a destroyer for a couple weeks uh, when I was in high school as part of like a junior reserve program when, uh, when I was... A young teenager, my family took a trip up to Washington State where the USS Missouri was being uh, moored at the time, and we got a chance to go on. And it's like walking up. You can see these things from a distance. It's huge. Aircraft carriers, they're huge. But when you get up close to them, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Well, I, I come from a Navy family also. My father was in the Navy, and then my brother was in the Navy during Vietnam, and then I have a nephew who was in the Navy as well. And so when we visited him in San Diego, we were able to go onto uh, one of those big ships, and he took us around. And I was just, I was in awe, actually, of all of it. And when you start to think about how many people are on board, yes, you know, when you're out at sea, and you see the conditions, and you see the you know, just their their little bedrooms and things like that. You know, it makes you so grateful for what you have at home because our men and women were living uh, in really tight conditions. They they are floating cities. The Missouri could have a crew of twenty seven hundred and a hundred and John's going to talk about this in the interview. And I think it was about one hundred and forty officers. But the the size of these ships, that you know, the length of the ship is eight hundred and eighty seven feet. And it'll be funny when you listen to the interview with John. It's a pre recorded interview, folks. And then the beam, which is the width of the ship at its widest point, is 108 feet. The width of the Panama Canal was a 110 feet. That's right. And I've been to the Panama Canal and um, actually did a lot of research on it when I did a one of my last books that I ghost wrote for. The gentleman there was part of uh, the building of the Panama Canal. His father was actually a part of that. And so back in 1914... Wow. One of the first ships that actually went through the Panama Canal was a warship. But they don't really tell you that in history. They make it seem like it was a, you know, a freighter. You know, something. (laughs) You're right, exactly. But no, it was a warship. And that was one reason why they were so anxious to finish the Panama Canal on time so that those warships could begin to go through the canal. Right, save time going around South America. Well, that's like forever. I mean, going around all, all the way down to Antarctica and then back up and no. They wanted to make sure that that was taken care of. So in 10 years, the United States was actually able to complete 
the Panama Canal project, whereas other countries like France was on it for a long time, lost like 67,000 people trying to just build the canal. Wow. And a lot of that had to do with malaria and yellow fever. Right. So, um, you know, the United States came in, bought up all the equipment from the French and then continued on with the project, finished it in 10 years. That's amazing when you when you're down there and you see it. It's amazing because the lock system, you know, is very different. The ships have to go into the lock, then they have to be pulled in by the the mule. Right. And then they have to let the water either raise Raise it or or lower lower it. it. And then it goes to the next step and it goes through that step process that lock process all the way through. And imagine doing that with a ship that's nearly three football fields long. Exactly. And two football fields wide. And those ships, when I was there, right, when I was there at the Panama Canal, and we could actually be right there watching them go through, there looked like there was only like a sliver of space. And that was before they widened it, of course, but they've done that new project now. But it was amazing how tight the the ship was to the wall of the lock. And that's why they had to turn loose the control of it, hook it up to the mule, not a real mule, but a a mechanical mule. And then the mule would pull it through. And and the captain was, he could not do anything. He could not control it at all going through the the canal. Well, the the, uh, Missouri was constructed... As it, you know, not as it went through the canal, no. but it was, but <laughs> no. it, it was constructed. You, you were talking about ten years for the canal to be done. The Missouri uh, was started in 1941 in January, and it was launched in January three years later. So three years to build that ship, and then it actually was commissioned in June of 1944. So it's it's a museum now. It has served time uh, in World War II in Korea, and and actually was uh, recommissioned to serve in Iraq. So, oh, really? Yes. It, it was one of the four Iowa-class uh, battleships that were laid down. There were two more, but they were not completed. So let's, let's hear about the launching. This is from a newsreel clip. And actually, very interesting, the sponsor of the USS Missouri was Margaret Truman. Really? Okay, well, that makes sense because the Trumans were from Missouri. Correct. And I guess Margaret was a great philanthropist. Uh, I don't know if she was a philanthropist. Uh, he was, uh, President Truman was senator at the time. Okay. So um, I don't know what the, I guess because of the, the name. Good she help. was, she was uh, you know, when you're in Congress, you can get a lot of different kind of things you could, done. You could do a lot of things. That's, except uh, currently. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's another story. <laughs> that's another whole, so, whole so other show. So let's listen to the christening of the USS Missouri in 1944. Mighty Missouri, largest and most powerful battleship in the world, is ready for launching. Her sponsor, daughter of the senator from Missouri, sends the traditional bottle of wine crashing against the ship's bow. Fastest and most modern warship afloat, the 45,000-ton Missouri goes down the ways months ahead of schedule. Her secondary batteries already installed. More than just another fighting ship, the Missouri is symbolic of the ever-growing strength of the United States Navy. Shipyard. From the Brooklyn shipyard, the ship takes off and and does some uh, maneuvers. 
as it relates to kind of getting things figured out, you know, is everything working correctly? And we're going to hear from John about that. But just to give you an idea about the ship itself, we, we talked about the length and the width, and the draft is, uh, I believe it's 34 feet. That's from the waterline to the keel, which is the bottom of the ship. The It had nine 16-inch guns, and you think 16 inches round, okay? Oh, I was looking at that little, you know, 16 and go, that's not a very big gun. Yeah, yeah 16 <laughs> inch, 16 inch uh, barrel. Op- barrel, right, barrel opening. Wow. And those, they were, they, were called, they were called 50 caliber guns because you take that 16 inch shell and you put it sideways and you took 50 of those. That's how long the barrel was from the breech to the end of the, of the, uh, of the gun. But they could fire a 2,700-pound armor-piercing shell 20 miles. And how many of those were being carried on the ship? Do you know that? I don't know that. I mean, I would think that if, if I'm going to send my guys out there into the ocean to, to do battle, I would want them to have more than maybe six. Oh, absolutely. Or eight. There were, let's what did we say, nine, nine of those 16-inch guns. So they're not firing at the same time. But they always had supply ships around to Oh, I see. Okay, That's, that, that makes sense. But the number of powder kegs that went behind the shell, I think it was like six powder kegs. And these were like, oh, they were probably 24 inches long, maybe. So you really needed to know what you were doing because if you messed up, it wasn't like um, blowing your fingers off when you hold a firework, you know, at 4th no. of July. No. no. <laughs> okay. You know, I read a story about this that uh, when it was recommissioned to be s- serving in Iraq and they modernized the ship and they put all these harpoon missiles and all these, you know, technical kinds of things on there, they still used the guns and they had some electronic things. But when the guns went off, it it really shook up the electronics and they had to go back to the standard procedure and they had to call some of the servicemen who served on the Missouri who actually knew how to use the guns in the old style to update the new uh, people serving on the ship how to use those guns correctly. Well, I can relate to that because it's kind of like when my when I talk to my grandchildren and they can't read uh, a clock that has hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. what, what is this dial thing? What is that thing? thing? What is what's that thing going around? Yeah. You know, they probably had to for that purpose. They had to call in the old guys, you know, and say, um, "How do you turn this knob? You know, you don't press that button. You don't." You know, pre-program, you don't do that? Yeah, that's when I was growing up. You didn't want the prefix Y down because it was 998 or something like that. Your, if your number was 998-9999. Oh, that would be horrible. <laughs> and you'd never, ever, you know, get a call because who wanted to spend that much time? Yeah. <laughs> that's right, exactly. So it departs Brooklyn. Uh, Shakedown Cruise is what uh, John called it, and that's what it is, where they, they did battle practice in uh, Chesapeake Bay, and they, they went through, again, the... The, Panama Canal. The, there okay, a, there you go. Couldn't spit it out. Panama I didn't know Canal. where you were going with that. Out to San Francisco and then out to Pearl Harbor. Uh, was stationed, did a lot of bombing out at Iwo Jima. They provided some direct and continuous support, uh, support for the invasion out there. Uh, they joined uh, some other uh, battleships. On April 11th, there was a kamikaze that came in and actually crashed on the starboard side. We'll hear about that. Hmm. And there was a very interesting thing that the captain did uh, at that time after the pilot died. Then they uh, were around after the after the surrender. And we're going to hear about that surrender right now. Uh, very interesting 
story that John's going to tell about the surrender. So kind of put that in the back of your mind as you listen to this clip. This is another newsreel clip about Douglas MacArthur. He was the Supreme uh, Commander, and there was a whole bunch of dignitaries that came on from a variety of countries, Australia, from China, from uh, obviously Japan and the United States, from France, from Belgium, from the Netherlands, from England, to sign this this peace treaty. So this is the signing of the Japanese uh, instrument of surrender on the deck of the USS Missouri in 1945. Ship Missouri, 53,000-ton flagship of Admiral Halsey's 3rd Fleet, becomes the scene of an unforgettable ceremony marking the complete and formal surrender of Japan. In the Bay of Tokyo itself, the United States destroyer Buchanan comes alongside, bringing representatives of the Allied powers to witness the final capitulation. General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Allied Commander for the Occupation of Japan, boards the Missouri. Fleet Admiral Nimitz, Pacific Fleet Commander, and Admiral Halsey welcome MacArthur and his Chief of Staff, General Sutherland, aboard. Admiral Nimitz escorts General MacArthur to the Missouri's veranda deck, where the 20-minute ceremony is to take place. It is Sunday, September 2nd, 1945. Japanese delegation lines up on the opposite side of the surrender table from the Allies. A war which had entered its eighth terrible year in China which had raged for three years and nine months for America and Britain, which was the brutal, costly eastern half of the most horrible worldwide war in human history, is now within minutes of ending for good. General MacArthur speaks. We are gathered here, representatives of the major warring powers, to conclude a solemn agreement whereby peace may be restored. The issues involving divergent ideals and ideologies have been determined on the battlefields of the world and hence are not for our discussion or debate. The terms and conditions upon which surrender of the Japanese imperial forces is here to be given and accepted are contained in the instrument of surrender now before you. As Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, I announce it my firm purpose in the tradition of the countries I represent to proceed in the discharge of my responsibilities with justice and tolerance while taking all necessary dispositions to ensure that the terms of surrender are fully, promptly, and faithfully complied with. I now invite the representatives of the Emperor of Japan and the Japanese government and the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters to sign the instrument of surrender at the places indicated. Concluding the brief history-making ceremony, General MacArthur expresses a wish. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. These proceedings 
are closed. Swarms of United States aircraft fly in formation overhead as the ceremony ends. The final United Nations victory has been won. The war is over. Peace is here. So there's something to think about with those planes flying over at the end. Uh, just to kind of store that in your back memory when you listen to John talk about that time, uh, because he has some very interesting information about the time of the surrender, about what was going on on the battleship, and I think it probably includes those planes too. Oh, wow. I mean, I will tell you, that was such a graphic description. Uh, it, it, I could see it, you know, in my mind's eye. It was so well done so articulated that I could just close my eyes and visualize the entire scene. And I think people are very familiar with the picture of the signing and they're sitting at the table. So it's a very, very moving time. It was moving. Because it was a time in which all of the countries really of the world were involved uh, against Germany and against Japan in what was going on. So the Missouri played a huge portion of that. And uh, I won't give it away, but John will talk about that too. Like, why the Missouri? Why was that ship chosen? And we'll stop right there, and we won't go on any more with that. But just to let you know that the Missouri actually went on and served, did some work in Korea uh, during the Korean conflict, and then was decommissioned and then recommissioned to serve in the Gulf War and actually during the Reagan administration because of uh, what President Reagan was doing to improve the Navy. And finally, was uh, again decommissioned, was given to, from my understanding, was given to the group that we're going to be talking to in the second hour, the USS Missouri Memorial Association, and they have uh, placed it at Pearl Harbor overlooking the USS Arizona. So out there at that facility, which we'll find out in the second hour, you have the beginning of World War II with the Arizona and the attack on Pearl Harbor, and then you have the end of World War II with the USS Missouri, where the Japanese surrender was signed. I love the fact that General MacArthur, you know, basically said, let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. My goodness, if he could have looked forward to see how that was not, this was only just the tipping of the iceberg, if you really stop and think about it, because so many other wars have come since then. Yeah, about seven years later, we had the Korean conflict. The Korean conflict. And then right after the Korean, we had a little bit of peace, and then we went into Vietnam for umpty-umpteen years. That just seemed like it went on forever. Um, Because again, you had the French, you had the, and they pulled out of Vietnam. Then you had the Americans in there for what, another 10 years or so. And then we were hoping for another little bit of war, I mean, peace. And then we started having Middle East crises. And now look where we are today. Still fighting, still warring, and still not having peace in the world. As long as you have people, you're always going to have uh, conflict. You're always going to have differences of opinion. It's whether they want to uh, agree to disagree or beat each other up. And we also have to look at the industrial complexes because, as they always say, war makes good business. Well, and President Eisenhower warned about that, the buildup of the military-industrial complex complex, and what that would do to an economy and to the country. I think he did that in his farewell address uh, that he that he made. So he was very, very well aware, uh, having been uh, commander in Europe for in World War II. So he was very familiar with what the military was doing in our country 
And you, you go back and you trace even our country in World War I. We were providing, prior to our entry into World War I, we were providing uh, Great Britain with their war materials. Exactly. Yeah. There's always somebody making money off of war. And that's so uh, not going to be in it for uh, for just the fun of it. No, exactly. Or just uh, because I need to do this, or I'm I'm a good guy. Right. But does that drive the economy? You know, some people question our getting into World War II was another kind of thing to help get us out of the economic situation we were in. So there's thoughts on that, and uh, that's that's another show. That'd be a good good show to talk about. I, I think that would be a really good show because we do have to look at, especially right now when we when we look at the fact that um, our president wants to take how many billions of dollars away from the Pentagon in order to to build the wall, and you stop and think, well, if that much money is there, you know, what are we doing with it, and and what happens if you take that much away to build this over here? Does well, it that- makes me wonder how much money we actually are are using in our government and. Is it really going towards the purposes that it's supposed to be going towards? That's right. Exactly. That's my thought as well. And um, again, you're right. That's a whole other conversation and and a whole different group of people. So get on it, Arnold. Get in touch with the people in the Pentagon. (laughs) Get them on here or tell them to come and fly in. We don't want to talk to them on the phone. We want to see their faces so we can see their expressions. And so that we could also have plenty of protesters outside of the radio station. There we go. So uh, we will be talking to John Atkins, who served on the USS Missouri uh, in 1944 and 45. He's 98. He will be 99 on Monday. And he is actually from uh, Hannibal, Missouri. Oh, wow. And then he moved down here to St. Louis after the war. So we'll talk to him in a pre-recorded interview in the second half hour coming up. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of In Tune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. This is Arnold Stricker with L.A. Wharton. We've been talking about the USS Missouri BB-63, and we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of it being launched from the Brooklyn shipyard. And, and I am learning so much. I just want you to, I tell you that every week, but it's always amazing the amount of knowledge you come to us with and just continuing to help us understand the history of our country. Thank you again for that. Well, you're welcome. And I had a great opportunity to uh, meet Petty Officer Third Class, Machinist Mate John Atkins, and I want to thank Steve Dotson, who's the Post Commander of American Legion Post 111 in Shrewsbury. He introduced me to John. They are good friends, and I know that they're listening right now to this broadcast. And John was a great interview. He had tremendous amount of information, a great story, and he was on the Missouri from the time it left Brooklyn Shipyard through the Panama Canal to Pearl Harbor, where they were bombarding Iwo Jima, then down to the surrender of the Japanese, and then back up to New York. So he was on the ship that entire time. He was, uh, for those of you that don't know what a machinist mate is, that's working in the engine room. So hot, close to the danger, right? 
I would Be- think. Beneath the water. Beneath the water. So he didn't see sunlight for a long time. No. Amazing. So we're going to hear John Atkins, Petty Officer Third Class Machinist Mate. And again, thanks to Steve Dotson for arranging this interview. We're with John Atkins, who was a member of the USS Missouri BB-63 crew when the Japanese surrender was signed. We're going to talk to him about how he got on the Missouri and where he's from and a lot of the stories that he can relate to us about uh, his time on the USS Missouri. I was uh, drafted in, you know, and uh, when I first went in, I was on a destroyer. Then I got off a mitt and got on to the the old battleship New York in Chesapeake Bay, and uh, I got off a mitt. They give me uh, new construction, and that's how I become on on the Missouri. You know, that was in well, in '44. You know, that was about uh, the Missouri was commissioned for the first time was in June of '44. And we never got into the war zone in there until 45. Now, when did you actually get on the ship? Were you part of the crew from uh, Brooklyn when it came down through the uh, Panama Canal? or? Oh, yes, yeah. I uh, I was part of the canoe, uh, uh, you know, on the Missouri. And we went through the canal and come out into the Pacific, you know. And uh, we wound up about Christmas time in Pearl Harbor. And then uh, we went from there, went into the war zone. Uh, going through the Panama Canal must be pretty interesting. Well, you know, when when they left on the, on the Missouri side, those fenders they have, you know, there for the, on the side, when they went up in the canal, raised it, them fenders were smoking. Well, it was... The beam there, you know, was only uh, 108 feet wide. That's how wide the Missouri is. And then with the heat, it made it swell more. Mm. And that I think the canal is only 110 feet wide. So I'd only give a couple of feet extra to get up through there. That that, and, mu- that and, must have been interesting to, to experience that. Yeah. Then it went into the uh, into the bay there. And then we dropped back down into Panama and uh, was there overnight and then went into the Pacific. Were you in New York and Brooklyn when the christening happened? No, no. So you no. were you were stationed on the ship after that because they had that, kind of a skeleton yeah, was, crew, didn't they? It, it was almost done when I got onto it. When I first got onto it, it wasn't painted yet. It was still in the, the inner part of it was still yellow. And uh, we used to, I had to go over there, what we'd done, we'd go and light the boilers off, and they were setting the, the pop-off valves, you know, for the, for the steam. The first time I ever went in there, I lost my way out. <laughs> <laughs> then the guy told me to go by the beams, you know, the number of the beams. That way, well, then I could find my way in and out of it. Interesting, because that ship is almost uh, 900 feet long. Well, it's 878 feet, 3 inches long. Not not that you're getting specific on this. <laughs> <laughs> and 108 feet wide and at the, at the and, beam. And then uh, from the uh, keel 
to the top of the mask is 209 feet. Wow. Three inches. <laughs> I don't know where they come in with this three inches, but it was all. Maybe they had a little leftover steel or something. Yes. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what was your specialty? Were you a machinist mate or? I, I was a machinist mate. Okay. I was a fireman first. Okay. And then, you, you know, we had to graduate up from that. Mm -hmm. And then I got to be a third class machinist mate. Petty officer, third class machinist mm -hmm. mate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you get through the Panama Canal and you're on your way to uh, Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And is that when uh, the Missouri took on more crew at that time? Because how many? No, they didn't take on more crew. What we done in Pearl Harbor, we took all the Christmas mail uh, out to the fleet. Gotcha. They loaded that all on. So how many crew on the, on the Missouri? Uh, about 2,400. Wow. And then 165 officers. How many crew did it take to run all the screws and, and get the boilers going and everything down in the engine room? Well, let's see, I, I had a watch on there uh, on the, in the uh, pump room, and I had four guys under me down there. And then uh, in the front before the boilers, there was, there was I think, three up there, for, or four it was. And then, uh, you know, they, they heat the uh, steam up to 600 pounds. Then they run it through another boiler and raise the heat to $850. Hmm. So that made it dry steam. Top speed, 33 knots? 32 33 knots? 33 knots is as fast as it could go. That's pretty, that's cooking. Yeah. That's cooking on the water. Yeah. <laughs> for, for a ship that big. You know how many horsepower that take? 2,012 horsepower. That's what they could, you know, accumulate. So were you kind of uh, intimidated by the size of the ship and oh, yes. by the guns, you know, the 16-inch yeah. guns? And... Yes, that thing weighed 45,000 tons, empty, loaded. It was 58,000 tons. Wow. You often wonder how much... How could all that weight float out there? So, and were you kind of surprised that it was floating? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if we were to walk up to, uh, if we were in dry dock and we were to walk up to the propeller, how tall is one of the propellers? Because they had four props on there, I think. Well, they had, they had four propellers. They had two with five inch, I mean five uh, bladed, and then two was four. Hmm. Two was for speed. And two was for power. Okay. Thirty-four knots was about the best I could get out of it, you know. Are those things like what, ten feet tall or eight feet tall or? Oh, they were somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't know if it's tall or not. Seventeen and eighteen feet, the propellers. So you're on the Missouri. You're in um, Pearl Harbor. It's Christmas, nineteen forty-four. Mm-hmm. And you're headed out, and what's the first action that you see? The first in uh, in Pearl, we had to go out and be classified. Okay, what does that consist of? Well, where they could shoot the guns and how they could shoot them, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, that was about it for that. Making sure everything was working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we first got over there. And we went out and got into the fleet. 
I, we just, you know, we, we start doing bombardments, which is what we did, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Iwo Jima and Mogmog and a lot of them other islands out there. Did the sound of the guns shock you when you first heard them go off? No, they were taking oh, the whole ship, you know. Any dust or stuff up in there, you come down. <laughs> you, you knew things were happening then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were they ever shooting like all nine off at the same time? No. Okay. If they did, they shoved the ship sideways. You know, take one, shoot this one, then this one. Alternate, okay. Yeah, alternate back and forth. Okay. So how, how far after you guys were at uh, Iwo Jima did the kamikaze pilot come in and hit the ship? I don't remember that, too. I know that it is hit it, I, but I was on uh, on watch when they had was in general quarters. So that kamikaze pilot hits the, the starboard side of the ship? Starboard side, right back by the number three turret. Okay. And apparently there's still some kind of uh, dent in the side? There's a dent in the, yeah. Wow, even today. What I read uh, was that the captain did not want to throw the Japanese pilot who had died over the side that he actually gave him a... Gave uh, him a military funeral. Military funeral. And and that was uh, that was very interesting that that happened like that. It was yeah. very honoring. Yeah. Well, they we honored the people, you know. He, he was Japanese, but uh, still he's a human. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. That was somewhere up on the close to the Japanese... Uh, mainland, you know, mm -hmm. about almost from the time when the war was almost over. So you were down in the engine room when that was going on. Yeah. How far down is that? How, How far below the, the regular general main deck? <laughs> oh, somewhere around about maybe 20 feet. Okay. It drawed 32 feet of water. So when you look at it, there's 32 feet underneath that, underneath down, you know, down. From the keel to the water line. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you're you're down. You're actually below the water when you're working. Yeah. Okay. I was at the bottom of it. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Almost in the bilges. <laughs> oh my gosh. Was it hot down the engine room? You quite warm. Especially in your. Yeah, but we had big fans blowing. You okay. Know? Okay. So what are what are some uh, interesting stories from working in the engine room? There wasn't too many interesting stories down there. We had. Uh, I know at one time down there we had trouble with the uh, one of the pumps for taking the water out of the main engines and putting it in an aerating tank. What we done, we pushed the wrong button and they throwed too much water up there to cool it down. Well, they had to have steam in there to force that out to come down here to get into the feed pumps to pump the main pumps to pump up into a boiler. And we had a little time with that. We took care of it. Luck luckily, you weren't uh, in any kind of uh, battle situation when that was going on, hopefully. No, that, that wasn't really a battle. We weren't in a battle or nothing. We were just steaming out there, you know. You got through that scrape. What are some other battles or transportation uh, accompaniments or other kinds of things that you remember, like maybe when an admiral came on or there was a change of, like the fleet admiral came on, did he ever use the Missouri as his fleet ship? Well, uh, Admiral, uh, 
the one admiral there, he used it as a flagship. Flagship, so. that's what it was. Yeah. And what is a flagship? Explain that, John. Well, what a flagship is, he, it, it takes care of the fleet. Okay. Okay. What, what happens after the battleship Missouri is out there to protect the aircraft carrier. And then you've got a bunch of destroyers. And most generally, there's a a uh, cruiser. No, there's a there's another name of a ship there. Uh, you know, a name like after the city. <laughs> I can't think of the name of that. I'm sorry. That's okay. They take care of the. That's what they do. They just you know protect the, the carrier really. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but we were in three different battles. I didn't even know when we were in them. <laughs> No, I was just down in the in the fire room. I knew I was on, uh, you know, on general quarters, but uh, what went on up there, I don't know. I never seen them. So several other people from uh, the state of Missouri served on yeah the Missouri. Well, you know, uh, the only one that I really knew about was uh, uh, what you call it, uh, nephew was on there, Truman's. President Truman's nephew. Yeah, he was there. Of course, I had a buddy who was from Missouri here, a guy by the name of Bill. That's, it, that's him and I, that's, that's about all I know about him. I didn't know there was that many, you know, there was 44 of us from the Missouri that was on it when the surrender was signed. Okay. Did you ever see when they took the uh, amphibious planes, did they crane them down or did they just kind of go off the, catapult off the back of catapult the Catapult off with a five-inch gel. And I, the only time I seen them go off was we were down in the, on the shakedown cruise, down there off the coast of South America. I was standing there and they read that plane up. I mean, it was really just fast as it could go. And then he fired that shell and <laughs> there he went. <laughs> you know, he goes off. He get, goes down and then goes Comes up, back you know. Up, yeah. Yeah. So they would just land and then crane back up to the ship. Yeah. Well, they had a crane on the back and they'd drop it down and pick it up. He hooked it right between his legs here. So you were down by South South America then too. Oh yeah. Well, we went down on the shakedown cruise. Okay. What's a shakedown cruise? Well, they they tried everything out. Shot the guns. They see what speed we could make. And see if the all the engines or all the motors and stuff was working. See how the, in other words, how the plane, how the ship mm -hmm. worked. This is on the Pacific side? Atl Atlantic side. Atlantic side. When did you hear that the ship was going to be used for the signing of the Japanese surrender? It was, uh, it, it got around through the ship quite a bit, you know. The South Dakota was kind of messed up too, either that. They thought they were going to be the signed up. But there's one thing new about all of it. If Roosevelt would have lived, he'd have been signed on to New Jersey mm -hmm. because they had put a elevator on there so he could go up and down in there because he thought it was in a wheelchair. Right, right. A lot of people ask me, why did they, why did they sign it on to Missouri? I always say to him, who was the president? Makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. Yeah. <laughs>
So how did the announcement come through that this was going to take place? And I think it was, what, September 2nd or the first part of September sometime? Well, September 2nd was signed. Okay, so, but you, you knew about it? Oh, we knew about it before. Okay. Yeah. Another thing, too, about when it was signed, we had to wear whites. If you couldn't be on deck, nobody was allowed on deck with the blue team. Too many pictures were going to be taken. Yeah. <laughs> too, too many films were going to be made. So you find out, and was everybody on the ship supposed to be on deck? Or were Every, some people? Well, you know, you don't know, but all them guns was loaded. Wow. They were ready in case that the Japanese come out and attack the Missouri. They were going to. And they and the guys talked them out of it because they said if you do, they'll drop atomic bombs on the rest of the cities. But they didn't know we only had two. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you when when the signing took place? I was on the after deck. I was back by number three turret. You know we had stations there where we, we always had to go on deck. You know for mm -hmm. that. And uh, I told the chief back there I had to go to the bathroom, and I went right through that ship and got up there, and I got up there in time to see the Japanese sign and one other one, and I figured, well, you better get back there. So, so I got down and got back out there. Now the signing took place uh, on starboard side? Kind of what, on the, number, on, number yeah, two? Yeah, on the captain's deck. Okay, on the captain's deck. Okay. Yeah. It's not down on the main deck. It's on up higher. Up. Okay, okay. And I hear there's uh, now a uh, a plaque there. Yeah, you know, when after the war was over, we stopped in uh, Hawaii, and that's where they put that plaque in the deck. I saw pictures of the of the Missouri right by the Arizona, and they and it's just an, a powerful picture. You have the Arizona Memorial, and then the Missouri is just looking right at it. And the beginning of the yeah. war and the end of the war, right there within uh, close close proximity of, of it. Well, that was the theory by having the Missouri as a museum in Hawaii. It started on the Arizona and ended on the Missouri. Mm -hmm. you have any, any, any favorite stories or funny stories? from your time on the Missouri? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of that devil's name. Uh, Halsey? Halsey. We were allowed two hours on the deck every day if we worked, you know, down below. And I was sitting there, leaned up against the bulkhead, and uh, here come this Marine coming by, hollering, the Admiral's coming. Well, we get to stand up. Here comes... Housey, and he said, "Sit back down." <laughs> he was he was a nice old man, you know. He had got a silver mounted, mounted saddle. He said he was going to ride that white horse through Tokyo, <laughs> and this guy from Colorado sent him a saddle, and they put it on the on the have it on the back down there, and they had this marine back there polishing the. The, the silver on there. <laughs> and old, he came back to her house, he did. He was just like 
talking to him just like we're talking here. He he was a nice old guy. He was a normal guy. Eh? He was a normal guy. He was really normal. And just yeah. because he was an admiral didn't uh, go to his head. Well, we had that, even that captain on the board ship. He wouldn't talk to you, you know. Now, that was the second captain, wasn't it? You had one captain prior to... Um, well, they wasn't had... Was it the same one at the same? They had... When I was on there, I think they had two different captains, you know. One of them was Captain Askin. He's no kin to me, but uh, that was the name of one of them. The signing took place in Tokyo Bay. Yeah. And as soon as what I saw, I, I watched a clip last night of of that with General MacArthur. Yeah. And he did his little speech and he said, we're done. And now these streets are over. Yeah. Everybody went their way and did, uh, I guess, the dignitaries got on the other ships and took off. And did you guys leave the bay at that time? Yeah, they just left, you know. I could have got off in Tokyo Bay. Then I asked Chief, I said, well, why can't I just stay and ride this one back instead of that tanker? He said, fine. So I went back through with him, you know, went back through the canal up to New York, and that's where I got off. Were you stationed on another ship? Did you get orders to go to no, a different no, ship? No, no, no. I was discharged. You were discharged then? Yeah, I had enough points to get out. Okay. So you were in uh, the Navy for how long then? Well, I went in on the uh, 13th of, uh, of April in uh, 43 and got out in November the 9th in 49 and 44. Okay. So I was in there about two years or a little better. Okay. What did you do after you got out of the service? Well, I was born and raised in Hannibal. Okay. And uh, I come down here looking for a job and... The state. I've been here ever since. Okay. What What have you been doing? What a was welding. your vocation? A welder? A welder, yeah. Okay, wow. Most of my welding was done with uh, like uh, maintenance welding. Okay. Stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> so I hear you work out every day. Yes, sir. That's great. Yeah. And you're how old? 98. You don't look it. I'll be 99 Friday. next Monday. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> you don't, honestly, you don't look that much over 80, 85. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. You look, you look really good. Yeah. The first thing I do is get on that treadmill, and then I get on the bike, and then I get on the muscle machine. Mm-hmm. Have you been back to Hannibal? Do you have a relation no, there? I've been wanting to go up there. They, uh, they got a wall up there, and they got all of the names of the guys that was in World War Two. Mm -hmm. They say I'm on it. <laughs> Have you been to Pearl Harbor since the oh, Missouri's yeah. been? Okay. Uh, back in 90, 98, I got a telephone call and they asked me, said, how would you like to go to Missouri, or to go to the Hawaii? I said, I can't afford it at all. It'll be free. And it was what it was, I went over there, Channel 30 sent me over there. Very cool. And then uh, they broadcast, they, you know, film over there. And then they'd film it back here on uh, at 10 o'clock at night for a week. I took that one. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So did you see some of your old shipmates there? No, oh, no. 
That's when I joined the Battleship uh, Missouri Association. Okay. They were over there at that time, and I I met all some of them, but they I never met anybody that I had been close to on the ship. Okay. You know, they only had uh, they had a meeting on the ship for this, and uh, there was a hundred of us there that had been on the Missouri when the peace treaty was signed. Wow. That's a hundred of us out of 2,400. Wow. That'd be a great honor. Yeah. Just to, uh, to be recognized like that after all those years and the yeah. time. So did you all call it the Mighty Mo when you were on it? No. I never got that name here until a few years ago that they started calling it the Mighty Mo, you know. So tell me about these pictures that you have here. Of course, you know what that one is. That's the surrender photograph. Yeah. This one here was after the war, and they were taking guys off from Missouri and putting them on the Wisconsin because they were going to, to uh, invade, uh, I mean, go into, uh, on shore there, you know, to go into Japanese. And this is the... That's the Missouri group. That's the Missouri group. She is 16-inch gun. Oh, my gosh, yeah, and you're right here, right here. Okay. Right there. Second from the right on the first row. Yeah. This in here, the catapult is gone. Yes, it is. So this was taken after the... You know, the other thing I didn't realize, I always thought Battleship Gray. Yeah. The Missouri mm-hmm. had this... Okay, when we went down on the shakedown crew, they had it that black and white and, uh, and uh, gray. Yes. That's when they had it that color. But when they got back to Port, back up there, you know, to New York, they repainted it gray. Why did they paint that black on it? Just to, it was kind of I, a camouflage or something? I or? don't know. But that's how, what color it was on the checkdown. I never knew that that was like that. So it, when the Japanese surrender in, in uh, Tokyo no, Bay, it, no, was, no, it, no. Was, it was gray. It looked like this. Okay, all right. It was quite it was quite interesting, you know. Piece of history. You lived that history. Yeah. You've experienced that. You were there when the signing happened. You were yeah. there when the, the plane, the kamikaze plane, hit the Missouri. Yeah. You were there when it left the Brooklyn shipyard. Yeah. That that's some history that most of us just get a chance to read in a book. Yeah. Or see the the video clips. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to talk to somebody who was actually there yeah. in person, that's that's huge. It's <laughs> yeah. an honor for me to talk to you, John. That was John Atkins, Petty Officer Third Class Machinist Mate, who served on the USS Missouri during 1944 and 45. That was exciting. That was, was exciting. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, John, and thank you, Steve, for making that possible. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only.
Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. You know, Arnold, that music always puts me in a really soulful mood. That's Andre Crouch. Yeah, I know. Well, that's why, huh? Take me back. Take me back. The late, great. Hey, Andre. we're going to take our time back to the 1944-45, which we've been doing the first hour, the USS Missouri. We heard an interview from John Atkins, who was third-class petty officer machinist mate, and he was talking about his time on the Missouri when it left the Brooklyn shipyard, and as he was on that when the kamikaze hit and when the Japanese surrender happened. And that was a great conversation with John. Absolutely. 98-year-old John, who turns 99 on Monday. He still works out, as we heard, and he's a great guy. I think I need him as my fitness coach. He would be a great fitness coach. No, he'd probably work you to death. Like, okay. He's, like, he's very sharp. He's very sharp. He yeah. does not look 98. No, he doesn't. I saw the picture of him, and truly, I mean, and I know this sounds crazy, but he doesn't look a day over like 80. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. I told him that. You... Uh, you might be very interested, folks, to know that the Missouri is now at Pearl Harbor, and there is a USS Missouri Memorial Association. And on the phone, we have Mike Carr, who's president and CEO of the USS Missouri Memorial Association. Welcome to In Tune, Mike. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Well, you say good morning, we say good afternoon. And by the way, it's 20 <laughs> degrees here right now, and the wind chill, I think, is about 15. Uh, it's, it's much warmer here. <laughs> Please, just tempt us a little bit and tell us, how warm is it? Well, I've been here for some time, actually, and I haven't been outside yet, but it's a beautiful blue sky, so I suspect that uh, today will be in the 80s. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, that's just <laughs> Our engineer, terrible. Chris, about fell out of his chair. <laughs> Do you know what we would give just to even have it be 50? <laughs> we would give everything for it to be about 50. Well, I know I've been in Missouri in February and March, and that's why I have a long coat. And Mike, you were here last April. You threw out the first pitch to the St. Louis Cardinals baseball game, correct? I did. That was a great experience. That was, and you were talking about the USS Missouri Memorial Association at that time. And tell us a little bit about what that association does and why it was founded. Uh, sure. When the ship was decommissioned for the last time in 1992... A group of businessmen got together here in Hawaii uh, with the idea of bringing the ship to Pearl Harbor uh, to be a historic attraction, uh, kind of bow-to-bow bow with the USS Arizona. The process, of course, is that you have to put together a business plan and then make a, a, a donation uh, request to the U.S. Navy. Uh, we were competing with a couple of other cities for the honor of having uh, this great ship, Eventually, uh, with the help and influence of uh, the late Senator Daniel Inouye, the Navy finally uh, chose us. We signed the donation agreement on June 4, 1998. And when you sign these, this donation agreement, you have 30 days to take possession of the ship. So naturally, plans had been in place for some time to, 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 to do so. So in the middle of June, uh, the ship was towed from Bremerton, Washington, first to Astoria, Oregon, where it was towed up the Columbia River to use the fresh water to clean the hull. And then it was towed across the Pacific and arrived uh, off of Waikiki on June 21st, 1998. I remember that day because I, along with tens of thousands of people, were on boats off of, off of Waikiki to watch the ship come around Cocoa Head. And then the next day it was towed into Pearl Harbor. And uh, for six months, 
thousands upon thousands of volunteers came every day to scrape and paint and rub and uh, and and eventually make the ship look uh, worthy of visitors. And uh, 20 years ago, on June 29 or January 29, 1999, uh, we opened to the public. The mission of our association is to preserve the ship, preserve the battleship Missouri and to share her story and place in history, which we've had the pleasure and the honor of doing for eight and a half million visitors over the last 20 years. Eight and a half million, eight that's incredible. Half. That's, that's incredible. Oh, that is. Now, you, how did you come about, did the government say, hey, by the way, we want to give the Missouri away to a, uh, a group uh, because we want it to become a museum somewhere, or did you approach the government at that time, the Navy? Well, the, again, the process is you make application to the Navy. Uh, when ships are decommissioned, uh, uh, they all can be either uh, scrapped or sold to other governments or put on display as living museums. There are quite a number of historic ships, uh, well over 100 uh, across the, the country, most of coast or on the east and west coast and in the, uh, anywhere somewhere near the ocean. There was actually some thought about trying to get the ship to St. Louis back then, but uh, the uh, draft of the river is just not deep enough, and you'd have to cut off the top of the ship to apparently get it under some of the bridges and get it up the Mississippi. So that just wouldn't have worked. But as a living memorial, actually, since we're here in Pearl Harbor, which gets 3 million visitors a year, uh, the ship has an opportunity to be a successful business, which it has been. And uh, it's important because the cash flow generated by our business model gets poured back into the ship uh, to maintain and preserve and restore it. And actually, the ship right now looks magnificent. Uh, we're about ready to engage in the second half of our superstructure restoration project, uh, which will take about six months. So uh, if you come here in about a month, the after stack and the after fire control tower will be uh, encased in scaffolding and plastic as we blast and repair and, and repaint it as we did the main superstructure uh, a year or so ago. So these two projects each are about $3.5 million dollars. And the money to do these projects comes uh, from every visitor that walks through our gate. Now, when you did the initial uh, conversion at Pearl Harbor, uh, was it in dry dock down there? Well, the ship came in 1999, uh, 10 years ago. In fact, this one, I, I've been here 10 years now. One of my first jobs was to uh, prepare the ship to go into dry dock, which we did in uh October of 2009 here at Pearl Harbor, uh, dry dock number four is just barely big enough to to handle the, uh, the dry dock number four is a thousand feet long and uh, the ship is 900 feet long so we, we fit right in. It was the biggest uh, ship uh, dry dock at Pearl Harbor since World War II. Uh, we were in there for three months to do repairs uh, to the hull and we will have to do that again probably in about the year 2030. Uh, presumably that'll be somebody other than me that has to worry about that. <laughs> no, it will be you. <laughs> you did such a good job That's 10 right. years ago. It will be you. <laughs> well, I'll probably, hopefully I'll do a better job because at the time I knew absolutely nothing about 
uh, naval uh, engineering or marine uh, naval architecture, and I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert now, but I know a heck of a lot more now than I did 10 years ago. And did you say that there, there could be the possibility of you all sailing that ship up the Mississippi if you didn't you know, bang up all the bridges and stuff like that? Well, towed up the the river. Yeah. Uh, the well, ship, the ship's engines can't can't really uh, be put in operation again, not without a lot of work. Probably more work than it's really worth it. But uh, it didn't take too long to figure out that it would not have made it uh, all the way up to St. Louis. Well, and then too, it would be like the Santa Maria that was brought over here. And I don't know if you know about that when they brought the replica of the Santa Maria to to St. Louis, and in the very first storm. It broke loose from it from its mooring. It sailed across to East St. Louis, hit something, and sank. Oh dear. So well, don't bring the Missouri here. <laughs> okay. Well we're not we're we're anchored to our pier with about ten mighty chains and so we're even in the even the worst hurricane, we're not going anywhere. You know the picture of the Missouri overlooking the Arizona is extremely powerful. You get a visual representation of the beginning of World War II in the Pacific Theater and the end of the war with the signing of the Japanese surrender. That, uh, you know, just looking at the ship, it, it's very uh, impressive. It's very uh, overpowering to you. And I'm, I'm sure visitors really, when they go to the Arizona, they're looking at the Missouri and they're seeing. And do you get a lot of comments about that? And, and was, was that specific location chosen for that specific purpose? Oh, yeah. And this speaks to the wisdom of actually bringing the ship here. Uh, there are very few places in this country where you can, you know, stand somewhere and get such a visceral, emotional understanding and feeling of history to stand on the surrender deck uh, of, the, of the Missouri and then look to your right and you'll see the the memorial that's over the sunken USS Arizona and understand that World War II began there for the United States and ended on the deck of the Missouri. And it's, uh, you know, and the Missouri is not abstract history in any way. It's history that you can feel and uh, see and, and, you know, imagine what it was like to serve on this incredible uh, uh, piece of technology. Even today, you know, they say they don't make them like that anymore. They definitely don't. Uh, the Missouri is an incredible example of technology. Just the, the blueprints alone for this ship weighed 175 tons. And um, so it's, uh, again, it's, it's not abstract history. Unfortunately, right now, the, uh, the dock that allows people to get off of the Navy boats and go on to the memorial has been under repair since May. So uh, you probably have heard that, you know, that there was some closures there, but uh, it's affected our business a little bit. Uh, people are disappointed that they can't actually walk on the memorial, but we're hopeful that they can get the repairs to that dock done uh, soon. Because you've got uh, the USS Missouri, you've got the Arizona Memorial, and then uh, there's the uh, Ford Island. That has its, a history of its own with the airfield there. And what, what are some other things that visitors would see in that Pearl Harbor kind of World War II historical tour? Sure. The Pearl Harbor historic sites, which we're known as collectively, includes uh, not only the Arizona Memorial and Visitor Center, also includes the USS Missouri, and we are on Fort Island. The P Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum is our neighbor here also 
on uh, Pearl Harbor. And uh, then there's also the USS Bofin Submarine Museum, which is attached to the Pearl uh, Arizona Visitor Center. So many people like to take a whole day and see all four uh, sites, and you can do it in, in a day. It's a long day, uh, but you can do it in, in a day, and that's what we hope people will do is come and, and visit all four sites and get you know different stories about the war, World War II, in the Pacific. So tell us a little bit about, so we, say we come to visit, what, kind of, uh, what kinds of things would we see on the Missouri Memorial, on the USS Missouri? I know you have uh, several kinds of tours. Can you walk through some of that, not in detail, but walk through what people would see? When people first come, they're invited to take a guided tour. It's part of the uh, admission price, and the guided tour is about 45 minutes long. Uh, that starts up on the bow where the best pictures of the ship are uh, and tells a little bit of the history of the the ship as well as the history of how it came to be here. Then visitors go to the surrender deck uh, where they're told uh, about all the details that went into that 22-minute ceremony. I love taking visitors up there because I could talk for hours about uh, the surrender story. Then people go to the aft end of the ship where they are told about the kamikaze story, another famous story uh, having to do uh, with the ship and its service during World War II. Then that's, you know, that's about 40 minutes, those, those things, and that's uh, the guided tour. People are then invited to go down to the second deck, which is open almost from one end of the ship to the other. Uh, where they, the second deck is where the main living area of the ship. So those are, there's quarters down there. There's like three different exhibits down there. Uh, there's the, you see the mess decks and the Truman line, you know, with the pictures of Harry and Bess, you know, walking with their trait uh, through the line when they were on board the ship. Uh, and then, you know, some of the engineering spaces. Uh, and then you end up in the wardroom, which is just forward of my office, where there's some more exhibits. Um, including uh, some of the ship silver, which uh, was just recently loaned to us by the by the state of Missouri just uh, exactly a year ago. There's another tour called the Heart of the Missouri Tour, which takes about an hour and a half, and that's really for the engineering types that want to go down uh, into the engineering spaces and see Broadway, which is the main you know engineering space on the ship. You go into the uh, fire room number four and engine room number four, and uh, those are the and so that's you know for the people that really want to get into the engineering side of of the ship. But those that small groups that you know and you have to be with a guide to go down to those spaces. So that's about it. Most people are here for about an hour to an hour and a half, and uh, there's plenty to see uh, that will keep you occupied for for that time. Now, I I assumed that your office was not on the ship, but apparently it is. So what a great thing where you're going to work. My office is actually uh, (laughs) the former damage control center uh, for the ship, which everybody on the staff here seems to think is very amusing. (laughs) and, And I look at it this way. Just the fact that you're there in Hawaii is like reason enough, okay? They could give you like the little shack at the back of the the pier somewhere, but you're in Hawaii right now with 80-degree weather. Yes. And tomorrow, of course, is a very big day for us. That's kind of the reason I know for for this call. Uh, Tomorrow 
is our normal Living History Day, which we have every year on the anniversary of the ship where we're open and free uh, to the public. So we're expecting, and it's a, and a couple, about 3,000 three, about 3, people. To, uh, to, tomorrow is an especially significant day, though, because it is the anniversary of the 75th anniversary of the launching of the ship in 1944 and the 20th anniversary of us opening uh, to the public in 1999. So in addition to all the activities that we'll be having all day tomorrow, there's a private ceremony early in the morning. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe from Missouri uh, is here. Um, the officers and crew of the submarine Missouri, which is home ported here in Pearl Harbor, will be participating in the activity, along with the officers and crew of the USS Jefferson City, which is also home ported here at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the mayor of Jefferson City uh, is here. Uh, so uh, there will be speakers, uh, proclamations, uh, gifts exchanged, and then we'll have a reception uh, afterwards. Uh, this evening, uh, everybody is going over to the home of the uh, Commander Howell, who is the commanding officer of the submarine Missouri. Uh, he and his, uh, his officers and crew, have a, we have a great relationship with them. Uh, that, the submarine is actually in dry dock right now getting a new outer skin. So, you know, they're, they're not able to do anything really on, on their own ship. So they come over here uh, for their uh, crew activities, which we welcome. I bet that's very exciting for them, uh, you know, being on a, a nuclear-powered submarine and now going back to uh, the USS Missouri, which has a huge history from, from World War II and Korea and also uh, Iraq. Right. Well, and they're very aware of that history, believe me. Uh, in fact, when the ship was being constructed uh, in Groton, Connecticut, we sent pieces of our, of our deck uh, which we're in the process of re restoring uh, to them, and it's integrated into some of the designs in their in their wardroom, uh, as well as some of the uh, the plaques. So there's there's a definite connection, and the crew of that ship is uh, very aware of it. So tomorrow you have those uh, dignitaries going to be speaking, obviously, and uh, making their proclamations, and you're having uh, free uh, admission for visitors at that time. Any other special kinds of celebrations? You're going to have fireworks or uh, special kinds of uh, presentations like the movement of some of the gun turrets or things like that? Uh, no, the, the gun turrets are not, we can't move them uh, without, you know, powering up all the steam on the ship, which is not going to happen. Uh, so you can make uh, kind of the guns go up and down uh, a little bit, but uh, right now they're up in a 30-degree uh, stance, and that's that's where we intend on keeping them. Um, there will be, though, lots of upcoming uh, uh, ceremonies between now and September of 2020, when we will commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of uh, World War II, uh, an event which Mr. Atkins uh, uh, witnessed, uh, along with there's a few others besides Mr. Atkins uh, that are still around, and they're all welcome to come and and visit the ship at our expense uh, at, at that time. And I'll try and get a message to him as best I can. Uh, but like in June of this year is the 75th anniversary of the commissioning of the ship. And I'm very proud to say that the post office, uh, uh, postal service, is issuing a stamp uh, uh, on that day, uh, commemorating the 75th anniversary of the commissioning of the ship. 
And then as we get into 2020, uh, and we start commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Iwo Jima and Okinawa battles that the ship actually participated in, uh, we'll have more, more ceremonies. So I'm sure you'll, you'll hear more as time goes by. Well, you know, Arnold, I think you and I should put this down on our calendar. And as we go, what do you always say when I'm not here? You're on assignment. I'm on assignment. We could do an assignment from uh, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. I think we really should. We'll start looking into our tickets right now. What do you think about that, Mike? Would you be up for that? Of course. You're always welcome. Now, are are you able to stay with us for a little bit longer, or do you need to get back to your your work for the uh, activities tomorrow? Uh, No, no. I have some time. That'd be great, uh, because I have some questions here, and I kind of want to throw those out there. We're going to go to a break here in a few minutes. But what's what's your favorite surrender story? Yeah, because I know you said you could talk for hours about that, so I'm kind of, you, you spurred my curiosity there. Also, uh, a little bit information, what you know about the kamikaze story, and mm-hmm. we, we heard from John about that. And then I have another question about, you have some unbelievable kinds of exhibits and collections on the ship itself, and wanted to know a little bit more about that and what those things were like. So I just wanted to kind of prompt you a little bit with that. So, by the way, uh, what's the cost of somebody to come on for any of these tours, like the Heart of Missouri tour or the Mighty Mo Pass? Uh, the to, to come onto the ship is uh, twenty nine dollars. That's our our basic retail price. Uh, the uh, Mighty Mo add on is in another twenty five dollars. Uh, people can buy a passport to Pearl Harbor for sixty two dollars, which gets you admission to all of the uh, historic sites here at uh, Pearl Harbor. So that's kind of the, the uh, quick that's a good uh, value. synopsis of the costs. That's a very good value. Now, do uh, re- retired citizens or uh, senior types get a little discount, or is that just a one-flat fee? Uh, it's just a one-size-fits-all. I know our engineer was kind of smiling at me because he knows I'm getting to be that kind of senior type, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> not quite there yet? Mm. Well, no, this but, all sounds so exciting, though, and I mean, to think, are you all going to videotape this or make sure that we have this archived so that our younger people, as they study the history of the Missouri and of Pearl Harbor in general, that this is not lost upon, no, I, you know, just just time? We uh, We have... Uh, documented uh, the stories of all kinds of former crewmen uh, like Mr. Atkins, although I'm not sure we have his story, but I'd love to get it. Uh, but the tomorrow ceremony actually be um, on uh, Facebook Live, so you can go and watch it. Uh, it'll be starts at 7.30 our time, which would be 11.30 your time uh, right now, so uh, it'll be on our Facebook uh, Live page. You have some really good information, Facebook, uh, Twitter, your, your Pinterest site, your Google Plus site, uh, very excellent information, some unbelievable pictures of the USS Missouri. And folks, you just that would be a great thing to tune in on Facebook Live on the ussmissouri.org. Uh, you can get that from their, their uh, website. Uh, we're listening to an interview with Mike Carr. We're talking to him. He is live in Pearl Harbor right now, and he is the executive director and, excuse me, the president and CEO of the USS Missouri Memorial Association. They are in charge of that uh, memorial and that museum that is taking place on the uh, USS Missouri. And they have been uh, doing that for the last, what, how many years now, Mike? 20 years. 20 years. There we go. 
Well, stay tuned to us. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been talking to Mike Carr, president and CEO of the USS Missouri Memorial Association, and they are celebrating the 75th anniversary of the uh, USS Missouri being uh, activated, commissioned, and coming out of the Brooklyn shipyard. And a beautiful situation in Pearl Harbor. Mike, I'm looking at that picture on your Facebook page right now where the, the Arizona's there, and then you got the Missouri just watching you know, Isn't that an incredible picture? Guarding everything. It's, that it's is just, gorgeous. It is gorgeous. It actually just makes you just kind of get chills because it, it, it is so was beautiful. Taken, that picture was taken from the Fort Island Bridge at about 6.30 uh, in the morning. But, I mean, it really speaks to the symbolism of the two ships bow to bow and the Missouri watching out over the 1,177 men that are buried uh, with the Arizona it it causes you to stop and reflect and i'm i'm sure there's many people who are uh they don't say a whole lot you're just kind of taking it in uh because of you know we've seen the footage uh, growing up you know when i went to school you've seen photographs my father served in the pacific theater when he was in the navy and you know you hear some stories you you talk to some some of the guys like john and maybe some of the other veterans who served on the Missouri or who were even around Fort Island during the, the raid on Pearl Harbor. But you should be kind of just kind of taking it all in, just like if you would go to a cemetery, uh, because well, it is it a is. cemetery. It's, like it's, it's as sacred as Arlington National Cemetery. Well, we talked before the break about some of the uh, some stories that you may have to share about mm-hmm. the— uh, Let's start with the kamikaze story. Do you have a, any information? Because, you know, when I talked to John about that, I know there's a dent in the side of the Missouri. Uh, I know that... So um, on April 11th, 1945, the enti- during the Battle of Okinawa, the entire fleet came under a wave of kamikaze uh, attacks. Most of them were shot out of the air. Uh, one, though, made it through all the ak-ak and came down and actually struck the side of the ship. Uh, the bomb did not go off, and most of the plane just fell into the water. But um, um, as Mr. Atkins uh, uh, described, the, you know, one of the, the one of the wings came onto the ship and started a small fire. So that was quickly put out, and the debris thrown overboard. But the body of the pilot was also discovered. The crew was ready to just toss it overboard, but the captain of the ship heard about it and stopped them. His name was William Callahan. And he was the first uh, commanding officer of the Missouri. And his brother, Admiral Daniel Callahan, had been killed fighting the Japanese in the Battle of the Philippine Sea two years earlier. But he stopped the crew and said, no, you know, we're going to give this young man a proper burial. And the crew was not happy about it. And so to explain himself, he actually went on the 1MC, make sure everybody was awake, and lectured the crew for a few minutes saying, telling them uh, that, you know, even though this young man, knowing he was going to die and undoubtedly 
scared out of his wits, uh, still exhibited all the traits of courage and devotion to duty and love of country that I'm trying to instill in every single one of you. And so as a consequence, we're going to give this young man a proper burial. So they, the next day, which was April 12th, 1945, they did that with a six-gun salute and uh, gave him a proper burial at sea and um, with a bugler, probably the only time there was a bugler on a, on a Navy ship. And that's an incredible story about you know, not losing sight of the values that make us human, even in the midst of the horrors of war. That story, though, was uh, kind of lost to history for a long time because April 12, 1945, was the day that Franklin Roosevelt died and Harry became the accidental president. So that obviously sucked up the news cycle and the story got kind of lost. But uh, it's become one of our best-known stories now because it is such a, uh, an incredible story about uh, humanity. And when President Obama and Prime Minister Abe were here in Pearl Harbor in December of 19, uh, 2016, and they both went on to the Arizona Memorial and, you know, symbolically, you know, put that war behind us once and for all. Um, and then they had a press conference afterwards. President Obama actually told that story. And I was dumbfounded. I was sitting there. I had no idea he even knew about the story. But it, he, as he told the story, they were over on the other side of the harbor from where the ship is. The Missouri was right over his right shoulder as he was telling that story. And for me personally, it was an unbelievable, you know, emotional uh, moment. You know, it speaks to the leadership and, like you said, the humanity of the captain, that even yes. in the midst of war, we are, and, and John stated this, you know, he was a human being. He was another fellow human being. So That's why right. not treat him with the dignity? But what a great lesson for the crew and uh, the wisdom of the captain to, to be able to do that. That shows tremendous leadership. How about the uh, surrender story? I'm sure, you know, I watched the footage and listened to uh, MacArthur's speech. We actually played that uh, in our first hour and uh, also played the christening from uh, Margaret Truman when she smashed the champagne bottle against uh -huh. the, the hull. But what are, what are some, uh, some information we can glean from you about well, the surrender story? Sure. I mean, there's so many, but I'll try and just give you two quick ones. Um, uh, MacArthur signed the uh, surrender document on behalf of all the Allies using six pens, Douglas MacArthur two times. The first two pens he gave to two officers who were standing right behind them, right behind him. The first one was uh, General J uh, Joseph uh, Skinny Wainwright, who had been captured uh, by the Japanese at Corregidor and had spent the entire war in a POW camp in China and had only recently been rescued from that POW camp. So as he stood behind MacArthur and he got the first pen, he was, he was 6'2", and he weighed 90 pounds in, in that picture. Oh my. The second pen went to General uh, Sir Arthur Percival, who had been captured by the uh, Japanese in, in Singapore uh, the day after Pearl Harbor, and he in, and had spent most of the war in a POW camp in, in Burma. So together, the two of them uh, were there symbolically representing all the POWs um, who had uh, endured and survived, and or those who even who didn't survive, 
uh, imprisonment during during World War II. So that was pretty significant. You know, that is interesting because I did watch that that footage and I saw him give those pens and I was like, well, I wonder, you know, why those two, what you just explained it. And that's mm-hmm. that perfect explanation. The last pen, the, the sixth pen he used was actually a pen that his wife had given him at the beginning of the war to kind of remind him to write home once in a while. And he <laughs> gave that pen back to her and she carried it with her every day uh, for the rest of her life. Now, that's another a story, very heartening uh, story. <laughs> another uh, story you might enjoy is uh, when the, uh, all the rest of the Allied nations signed the, uh, the, the documents. There were two uh, sets of documents, a Japanese copy and an Allied copy. And the Canadian representative was so nervous uh, that when he signed the first copy, the Japanese copy, he signed on the wrong line. He signed below the name of Canada rather than above. And so everyone else who came after him, there were three more, also had to sign on the wrong line. And at the end of the ceremony, the documents were handed to uh, Shigemitsu, who was the foreign minister. And he handed it to his aide, a gentleman by the name of Kase. And Kase had been educated in the United States and, you know, I think at Princeton and spoke English perfectly. He looked at the document and saw that it was uh, screwed up, it was messed up. And so he immediately walked up to MacArthur and said, look, this is wrong. And MacArthur looked at it and said, you're right, it's wrong. And he handed it to his chief of staff and said, make it right. So the chief of staff had to then line out the incorrect country under the signatures and write in the correct uh, country and then initial it. So if you look at the copies, uh, which we have on display uh, up on the surrender deck, they're, they're just copies, obviously not the real thing. You see that they're different because on the Japanese copy, uh, the signatures are all messed up. Uh, but, you know, the joke, uh, so the, uh, the person who signed for Canada was a colonel. His name was Colonel Cosgrave, and everybody else who signed was either an admiral or a general. So the joke is that you, you don't send a colonel to do a general's uh, job. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That's a great story I would never know. You know, those are the kinds of things, folks, that if you— Oh, I got a lot more, too. <laughs> well, you have to go out to the USS Missouri uh, Memorial to learn more of these stories. And one more question for you, Mike, before we let you go. We're listening to Mike Carr, who's the president and CEO of the USS Missouri Memorial Association. The kinds of exhibits and collections you mentioned, too, you have copies of those surrender documents. What other kinds mm-hmm. of things? Because I'm a, a big history buff. I know Ellie is also. And uh, my wife and I, we read everything. We like to look at that stuff. It's, you know, you can touch it sometimes, sometimes you can't. But what do you have out there? Well, down on the second deck, there are three main exhibits. Uh, the one exhibit is the Kamikaze exhibit, actually. We decided to tell more about that story. It was initially just supposed to be a temporary exhibit uh, when we were uh, uh, celebrating the 70th anniversary a few years ago. But it's been so incredibly well-received that we're now going to, about ready to knock it down, actually, next week, and um, uh, rebuild it and make it permanent and uh, dedicate it uh, when we have the 75th anniversary of that event in early uh, 2020. So that's one exhibit. There's also the cruise room exhibit, which tells the story of the life of the ship 
through the eyes of the crewmen. And there are so many artifacts in that exhibit, you know, I can't possibly describe them all, but, you know, uh, letters and photographs, copies of documents, you know, little mementos like copies of the original surrender cards and uh, uh, pictures that, you know, describe life on board all the way through the, the again, the, the ship service in the uh, in in the Persian Gulf in in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, there's also a World War II uh, exhibit uh, down there, which has uh, pieces of the Oklahoma, because where we are uh, birthed right now at Pearl Harbor is the exact spot where the Oklahoma was and where it capsized, and it also lost 400 men uh, in, in 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 that incident too. And then you come up into the wardroom, as I mentioned. Uh, we have stories about uh, the other ships that were named after the great state of Missouri. Uh, uh, our ship is the is the fourth. Submarine is is, is the fifth. Uh, the the first uh, uh, Missouri was one of the first steam-powered uh, uh, ships in the U.S. Navy. It actually, caught fire and sank in Gibraltar in 1842 caused a big diplomatic row between the United States and Great Britain. And then there's also a model and some stories about the first battleship Missouri, which was BB-11, which was part of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet that sailed around the world in 1908-1909. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we have some of the ship's uh, silver here, which was recently uh, donated to us by by the state of Missouri. There's and we, so we tell that, that story. There's actually 300-some-odd pieces in the entire set. Almost all of it at this point is in the governor's mansion in Jefferson City, but we're proud to have a few pieces here that allow us to, uh, to also tell that story. And then we also have a display of Captain Callahan's sword. Uh, so we're honoring him as well with his, uh, with his sword here. So that's just, you know, uh, a small part of uh, what you can see when you come and visit the ship. Now, I know at one time the the uh, ship's bell was at the Capitol, and I don't know, has it been returned to the ship? No, it's still in the Capitol, in the in the main uh, lobby uh, there of the Capitol in Jefferson City, the, all, the, all the way down to the end. The bell is down there along with a, uh, the, one, a copper model of the ship. There are two of these copper models that were, were made, uh, in order to test how radar bounces off the ship. But we have, so the, there's one there in the state capitol, and we have the other one here. Unbelievable. Mike Carr, President and CEO of the USS Missouri Memorial Association, want to thank you very, very much for what you're well, doing it's been my to, pleasure. to keep uh, the memory and the history of the USS Missouri alive and well. And uh, I greatly appreciate your time today. It's been very, very informative, and we really look forward to getting out to uh, Hawaii to to visit you and talk to you in person. Absolutely. Very good. I, I look forward to it. And try and make your visit sometime in January or February. <laughs> That's right. Yes. When it's a balmy 80, right? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks All so right. much, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Take care. You're very welcome. Wow. Arnold, that was absolutely fascinating. That's just cool. You know, you look at, uh, this is the thing about history. When I learned it, and as people learn it now, you can learn it in 2D. You can learn it by looking at pictures, or you can go to a place or go handle something that was actually part of an event. 
And whether it's here in St. Louis or whether it's, you know, in Washington, D.C. or any other city or here, if, if you go to uh, Pearl Harbor and you step onto the USS Missouri or you step onto the USS Arizona Memorial and you're looking down at, at the ship there in, in that is sunk in the water and you see and feel the emotion of what's going on, that is what history is about and understanding how did we get into this, why did we get into this, what was it all about, why did why are we get into wars, you know, there, there's a whole lot of things you can talk about as it relates to war. And, and also, how did we cons. get out of it? How do we get out of it? Right. And and it, what did we get out of it? Exactly. That's the key thing. What did we get out of it? What did we learn from that situation will help us to better understand the next situations that occurred? You know, and it's interesting, I think maybe, and I'm going to make a generalization right now, that the people who actually participate in the war, who are there, get it. They, they are aware because they see, they smell. Oh, my they, gosh. They feel. They hear. Yes, and hear about uh, of war. And the people who push nations or push uh, groups to battle, while I understand they have an appreciation of the uh, responsibility of putting people's lives at risk, I'm not, I'm not debating that, and I'm not minimizing that, but... If you talk to somebody who has been in a battle, who has smelled and seen and heard and experienced or taken a life or had the life of a, of a fellow serviceman taken right next to them, you have a different kind of understanding and appreciation for uh, whether nations should or should not go to war or whether people should or should not get along or if they don't get along can they just leave themselves alone or can they just figure out a way to survive together mutually? It would make a big difference. Again, just like you said, being able to understand that so that people become a lot more conscious. And, you know, because one of the things that I always look at, too, when we talk about people wanting to, you know, governments and Congress people and presidents wanting to send other people to war, first of all, have they been to war? And secondly, for new wars, are you willing to send your son to war? I think those are key questions because when we look back on our history and we go back over, you know, especially from the 60s on, you see that there were people who had privilege and they used that privilege to not have to go to war. They became conscientious objectors. They had medical disabilities given to them. They had all kinds of things that kept them from going to war but they themselves were willing to send other young men and women to war. Well, and knowing that it was what John Atkins said in the interview, and it was, it was emphasized by Mike as the captain had uh, told the, the crew, you know, this is, this is a human being. We're going to honor him because he did his job. He's just like any of you who are 17 or 18 or 19 years old and going out and doing some of these kinds of things. He was just doing what he was told to do and what he signed up for, and we need to honor him for that. And, and it goes back to the statement that I read at the end, and I don't say this flippantly, folks. It's not, it's not a joke where I say, don't forget when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race. But if you think about that statement, let's just say Martians really invaded. Okay, so are we going to say, oh, well, the United States, and we're not going to get along with this country over here? No, we're all the human race at that point, because Absolutely. we've got outsiders now invading. Very similar to what happened at uh, 9-11. 
you know, when the Twin Towers were hit. Well, there was people that really didn't see eye to eye about a lot of things. They saw eye to eye on that particular issue. Exactly. And, you know, I just met with a a lady this week who told me something very, uh, just heart-wrenching. One of the four Americans who was killed by ISIS last week um, in that bombing. Was a St. Louisan. Right. And not only that, he was a friend of this lady and her oh, wow. her boyfriend. And she can remember him coming to their home and spending time. And so to her, she was saying that was like so unreal to her that he was there doing what he loved to do and that his life was ended. And so we see, okay, there are four Americans that lost their life. You know, we kind of see this at umbrella. But for her, it was like one of those four was my friend. And the thought of him never being able to come back over and spend time with them was very heartbreaking for her. And when she told me the story, it even brought it closer to me because now I'm saying, you know, through six degrees of separation, which really isn't even six degrees, it's two degrees of separation. I have a friend that knows someone that was killed, knows that person that was killed. When it comes that close to home, it makes you stop. It gives you pause. It gives you pause and and really encourages this is why, you know, we talk about this a lot. We, you know, maybe we talk about history too much on this show. Not. Not. Uh, if, if you don't know your history, you're going to repeat it. And again and again. And the thing of it is, is what do we say about when you continue to repeat the same thing, but you expect a different result? Insanity. <laughs> Insanity. Albert so, Einstein. That's right. So are we destined to just be an insane kind of world where we kind of like we're just like the hamster on the wheel? We just keep running and running and running and running and running. Or do we at some point learn to say, you know what, I'm jumping off the wheel and I'm going to live and we want our country to live a different kind of life. Or I'm going to stop walking on the wheel. I might stay on the wheel, but I'm not going to walk on it. Exactly. I'm not going to get thrown around by it. Yeah, that's another thing. On my wheel, I'm going to stop. That's right, because you could be on the wheel, and it could be out of control, and you can't get off <laughs> yeah. until you just get, get, hurled, get around. hurled around. That's right. Well, it, that reminds me of this particular story, and it's, it speaks to kind of what Ellie and I are talking about. It's called a very special bank account. Imagine you had a bank account that deposited $86,400 each morning. The account carries over no balance from day to day, allows you to keep no cash balance, and every evening cancels whatever part of the amount you had failed to use during the day. What would you do? Well, you'd draw out every dollar each day. So we all have such a bank. It's called time. Every morning, it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night, it writes off as lost whatever time you have failed to use wisely. It carries over no balance from day to day. It allows no overdraft so you can't borrow against yourself or use more time than you have. Each day, the account starts fresh. Each night, it destroys an unused time. If you fail to use the day's deposits, it's your loss and you can't appeal to get it back. There is never any borrowing time. You can't take a loan out on your time or against someone else's. The time you have is the time you have, and that is that. Time management is yours to decide how you spend the time, just as with money you decide how you spend the money. It is never the case of us not having enough time to do things, but the case of whether we want to do them and where they fall in our priorities. That is always, whenever I read that, it certainly takes me back. It makes me think about, from a biblical standpoint, too, that God's mercy is new 
each and every day. So we can never say, I'm just such a bad person that I can't, you know, be a party to forgiveness or understanding or love because each and every day we are given that new mercy. And that's just like the time there. We're given that new, how many seconds again was that? 86,400. Every second, every second counts. And so we have to do the best thing that we can do to make sure that we live up to that and that we treasure it. It's like a present. It's a gift. Yeah, where we are stewards of time. That's right. Oh, that's a very good way of putting it. We, we are should stewards. squander. And that, that's a very biblical reference, too. We should squander what we're given. Life is very short in the scheme of things. Oh, it's, a, it's just a snap. You know, it's like when you're looking at prophecy and they talk about a day. You know, for a day in our life is a year. You know, I've read that story about, yeah, I, I, yeah I, and, and this, this is the biblical that's account right. says a, a day is like a thousand it's years, like a thousand, thousand years, years. that's one right day. exactly so if you knew that how would you spend that one day well and that comes to uh, when people get to end of life or they get a diagnosis of a terminal illness they have a tendency to pay more attention because if you said, somebody says, well, gee, you've got two weeks to live, how are you going to spend two weeks? Exactly, exactly. When my husband was, was in the last stages, I would go everywhere with him. We'd go to the Walgreens. We'd go to just little things, you know, because I knew that at some point I was not going to have him anymore. And each, even just going to the Walgreens was a, a wonderful experience for me. And the application of that, Ellie, is even if you don't have a terminal illness, why not go to the Walgreens anyway with your spouse? You better believe it. Because that's the time you spend together. Now, some people might say, well, yeah, I spent enough time with them already. Why do I need to spend that time with them? You know, how long it takes to shop and all that. Oh, yeah. You never know in the blink of an eye. You never know if you say goodbye to your loved one in the morning or kiss them and tell them I love you, whether that's the last time you're going to see them or not. That's right. Exactly. So So enjoy the time. Make use of the time. Be a good steward of the time and of your relationships with your children and your neighbors and your family. And you know what? We're almost out of time. Hey, you think you're the only one that can do a segue? (laughs) (laughs) There's, There's time enough to maybe go to one funny. Okay, because this has been pretty heavy, so one funny. I, I, I have to, I, I wasn't prepared for this because I was really serious there about about what we were talking about. So I could actually do this, and I have to do this quickly. One night, four college kids stayed out late partying, having a good time. They paid no mind to the tests they had scheduled for the next day and didn't study. In the morning, they hatched a plan to get out taking their test. They covered themselves with grease and dirt, went to the dean's office. Once there, they said they had been to a wedding the previous night, and on the way back, they got a flat tire, had to push the car back to campus. The dean listened to their tale of woe and thought he offered them a retest three days later. They thanked him and accepted his offer that time. When the test day arrived, they went to the dean. He put them all in separate rooms for the test. They were fine with this since they had all studied hard. Then they saw the test. It had two questions. Question one, your name, one point. Question two, for 99 points, which tire burst? Front left, front right, back left, or back right? <laughs> Lesson, always be responsible and make wise decisions. Very good. That is excellent. For 99 points, which one? <laughs> so I used that time wisely because you gave me that segue. So we're going to sign off here, folks. Our time has gone. Oh, my goodness. And we hope that you've enjoyed uh, listening to this USS Missouri uh, firsthand account by John Atkins and also the phone interview with Mike Carr. If you missed any of that, you can check us out on SoundCloud or iTunes. You have to plug in in tune and KWRH radio show. 
Don't forget, when the Martians invade, there is only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. This is KWRHLP 92.9 FM. For Intune Studio Manager Christopher Dacey, co-host Ellie Wharton, I'm Arnold Stricker. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, walk worthy and let your light shine.